How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open God's word this evening, we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture uses a lot of different images in order to uh, explain the different aspects and facets of that relationship. We walk in the light, which has to do with walking consistently with God's righteousness and holiness. That's one dimension of the light. Another is revelation. So we are walking in the light of God's word. We abide in Christ. That has to do with our remaining in fellowship. It's not just a matter of some people say, I'm in and out, in and out. It's really an issue as we mature of staying, abiding, remaining in that close relationship with the Lord. We walk according to the Spirit or by the Spirit. He's the means. He's the standard. He's the one who guides and directs us. And when we walk by means of the Spirit and we are consistently abiding in Christ, then the Spirit produces fruit in our lives. So when we come together, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with God because that is when the Spirit is positively producing spiritual growth and enhancing our spiritual life, storing the Word of God in our soul so that we can use it later when it needs to be applied. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess sin if necessary, for that is how we are restored to that walk with the Lord, that fellowship, that partnership with him in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together again to study your word, to be refreshed by your word, to be strengthened by your word, to be reminded of who you are and what you have provided for us. Father, during this time when we are in a tremendous amount of uncertainty and chaos because of this uh, coronavirus, we pray that we might be stable, that we might have our focus, our attention upon you, and using this time to focus on our spiritual life, using that time with our families, using that time with children, to focus their attention on who you are and what you've provided for us. As we look at this psalm tonight, the focus at the beginning is on who you are, what you've provided for us, and then the focus shifts to uh, how we are benefiting and what what is provided for us when we have that close walk with you, when you are our shepherd. Now, Father, we pray that you would Open your word to us that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear and that we might clearly see how these things apply to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. We're continuing our study of David in Second Samuel. David is, uh, <clears throat> at this time in our study of Second Samuel, b- taking a little break from the narrative in Second Samuel 15, where David has had to flee from Jerusalem. His favorite son, Absalom, has entered into 
uh, the city. He is in rebellion against David. There's been a years-long conspiracy against David, running David down many different lies, slanders, uh, a lot of conspiracy against David. And so David now is at a point where he's fleeing from his life. And we've studied how he has fled from Jerusalem. He has fled north along the Kidron Valley and then over over the ridge of what we refer to as the Mount of Olives. And at that time, he we know he wrote Psalm 3, but there are some other psalms that really do fit that particular situation and scenario. We looked at Psalm uh, 64, we looked at Psalm 61, we've looked at Psalm 62. All of these fit that kind of a setting. And tonight what I want to do is focus our attention on uh, <coughs> Psalm 23, a favorite psalm of many, many people. It is frequently memorized, frequently quoted, fre- frequently recited. I know I memorized it uh, many, many years ago, and often at night when I'm awake and I wish I was going to sleep, I would I start reciting through the 23rd Psalm or some other passages that I know. And so it is one that has rich, rich depth of meaning. It's amazing how much is packed into this, this short Psalm. It is six verses and each phrase is well crafted and it is packed with significance and packed with meaning. And this is one reason that this is one of the most oft-quoted, oft-memorized uh, psalms. When we closely examine it, we can see how it is the product of a mind that deeply trusts in God and who has spent a lot of time meditating on the character of God, on the provision of God, the protection of God. And he has distilled that down to some very, uh, very short but very uh, pregnant phrases. And it's very significant for us to look at this to see how he has structured this because it, it's, it's a masterpiece of literature as well as a masterpiece of biblical teaching and biblical doctrine. So the main theme is that the shepherd protects us. There are two metaphors, actually, as we'll see here. The first presents God as our shepherd. The second presents God as a host. So the shepherd metaphor is the first four verses. Verse 5 shifts to presenting the Lord as our host who has prepared a table for us to come and to dine, which is always a picture of fellowship and blessing and prosperity. And then its conclusion in verse uh, verse 6. So the shepherd protects us here in Psalm uh, 23. So let's just review a few initial uh, introductory observations. First of all, we look at verse 1. Yahweh is mentioned here. Yahweh, the personal name of God, the covenant name of God with Israel. The name Yahweh is from the Hebrew verb, which indicates being, and it has that idea, I am that I am. God is the self-sustaining one. God is the one who provides for us and protects us. God is the one who is all in all. He is completely other, completely distinct. He is unique. He is the creator God, the one who is distinct from his creation. Whereas when you examine all of the pagan deities, they are all part of the creation. 
they are all nature deities or they are spirits or something, but they are all subject to the same problems and flaws and sins and failures of human beings. But the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is totally distinct. And he is named in verse 1, Yahweh, my shepherd. The is is supplied in English to make sense, but it's much more forceful in the English. And then his name is not mentioned again until you get to verse verse 6. There we read in the last line, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. So that forms an inclusio, and an inclusio is just the Latin term. We know the English word inclusion. So when you start off and you use a certain phrase or certain language in a verse, and then you find that language or word or phrase repeated a few verses later, then the writer is using that to, to set off that particular section. And they didn't have the uh, printing that we have today. They didn't have the various tools of of bold-faced type or italicized type or the different symbols such as parentheses or brackets or things of that nature. So they did this with verbal repetition. They did it with various rhetorical devices. And so we see that this whole thing is wrapped around the person and the name of Yahweh. And so verse 1 and verse 6 are the only two mentions of his name, and that tells us this is a unit and that everything in between is teaching us about God. The second thing that we see comes up in verse 3. Excuse me, I put down here the first three verses. Uh, In the first three verses, we see a reference to God in the more detached third person. Uh, Verse 2, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me. He restores my soul. He leads me. And then in verse 4, there is a shift. And at the second, uh, second half of the verse, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So it shifts from third person singular to second person singular. But it is these four verses that are linked together by their theme. They all speak of Yahweh as a, as a shepherd. The third observation we make is that the focus begins with understanding who God is. It moves from expressing God as a shepherd, one who provides, one who protects, and then it advances to confidence. So we have first the essence of God, the character of God, what God has provided for us. He is the one who uh, is such in his nature that we have no needs. That's the confidence of the first verse, which is, as it were, a topical sentence. And then we have, he makes me lie down, he leads me beside, he restores my soul, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. And then we have a conclusion, yea or yes, or in conclusion, though I walk. See, this is stating that because, basically it's saying because God does these things for us, because he provides everything, he makes us lie down, leads me, restores me, leads me, because of that, even when I am walking in the worst of circumstances, the literally he talks about the darkness 
the shadow of death, emphasizing the darkness, these dark times in life when we go through very, very difficult times, times of uncertainty, times of chaos, times of loss, times of grief, that when we are in that kind of a situation, the conclusion is that we will fear no evil. Nothing will shake us. We have stability. We have certainty. That doesn't mean that we that we don't grieve. It doesn't mean that we don't sorrow. It doesn't mean that we're uh, not experiencing those human emotions, but they don't control us. They don't dominate us. They, they are there, but we uh, recognize what they are, and we rely upon God to take care of us and to provide for us. There's a great implication here. Today we live in a world where people say, if you have a problem, you need to go to a counselor. Uh, this is such a terrible model for today because the counselor, capital C, is, is Yahweh. That's what this is talking about. If Yahweh is our counselor, he counsels us through his word. He counsels us through pastors. In fact, up until the mid to late 19th century and the advent of Freudianism and psychotherapy, the way people face life and face problems was through the scriptures. That's how Christians handle things. And so you had circumstances and situations for hundreds of you. Go back to the Old Testament. This is David, 1000 BC. And the Lord is his shepherd. And because of that, he says, I shall not want. Now, did David have bad circumstances? Of course he did. He faced horrible circumstances. Some of them were from his own choosing. Others of those were thrust upon him. We think about his early years when he is being chased and pursued and threatened with death by, by Saul. Saul's got, as it were, wanted posters out at every post office in Israel, uh, wanted David dead or alive. And David is fleeing for his life all of that time. There are conspiracies, there's enemies, all of this is going on. There are some who say that this, this fits the scenario of Psalm 23. We can't say for sure because we don't know uh, when it happened. There's no uh, statement about the historical circumstance in the, circum, uh, uh, in the superscript. It just says a psalm of David. But it also fits that time when David's son betrays him, turns against him, seeks his life, seeks to destroy him, and yet David, is, you know, he has all of the negative emotions related to that. You can think what must have gone through his mind as he is having to put all of his people together, flee from his palace, flee from the city that is named after him, Jerusalem, the city of David. And you can imagine the turmoil that went on through his soul. We've talked recently about the Lord Jesus Christ who was troubled as we covered a special on Holy Week last week. We talked about the Lord Jesus Christ as he's going into Jerusalem on what is called Palm Sunday. And he looks on the crowds and he is troubled. This is an emotional term. It is a term that, that you could think of at waters that are uh, churned up by an ocean and use that metaphor to describe a person's soul that is uh, uncertain, that is chaotic, that uh, everything looks unstable and, and could respond in fearfulness. But despite those emotions being churned up, the Lord never responded, never let those emotions dictate his actions. That would have been sinful. But David is the same way in this verse. He's not letting those 
those emotions that uh, dictate what his actions are and dictate what he's going to be. And so we have this, this confidence that is expressed in God, and that's essential to being able to walk by faith and, and not by sight. We're trusting in God. And so we see that in this third, third point, it moves from understanding God as the protector, the provider, the feeder, the one who has given us everything, to confidence in a crisis. And this is something I've told you again and again and again when we go through these psalms that focus on a problem is that think through these issues like the psalmist does. Think about God when you are awake at night, when you're faced with uncertainty. And I know that in this in this time of this virus and the quarantine, there are thousands and millions of people in this country who have, they don't know how they're going to pay their bills. They've lost their jobs or they've been put on furlough. They are uncertain as to what's going to happen next. There are business owners. There are small business owners. There's large business owners. There are corporate owners. There are people who have watched their 401k uh, plans cut by 60, 70, 80 percent as they've seen, uh, seen the stock market drop from, uh, you know, almost 30,000 down to almost 18-something. And this is fearful for them. So there are people who are uncertain, and yet, uh, so this is a dark time, and yet for believers we can trust in God because our hope, our certainty, our confidence is in him and his control and not in these details these details of life. So what we see also in these first three uh, observations is that first we have to think in terms of what the scriptures teach. We have to think in terms of doctrinal truth. Get your mind off of the, the, the issues and onto who is God. Think through the essence of God. And then as you think through the essence of God, you think in terms of what God has supplied and provided for us. Fourth introductory observation is that the focus in this psalm is on confidence. This writer is confident in God. He is confident in the sufficiency of God, that God has provided everything, not some things, not most things, not just spiritual things, but God is going to completely, totally uh, take care of him and provide for him. I shall not want is an extremely strong statement. It, uh, the idea of wanting something in the sense of lacking something is a is an older, antiquated expression, and you, it would be better to translate it today, I have no needs. No matter what your circumstance is, maybe you can't pay your mortgage, maybe you can't pay your bills, maybe you have to put everything on your credit card, uh, maybe you are threatened, although there have been certain laws passed to protect people in this situation, uh, you've been threatened with uh, being kicked out of your apartment, kicked out of your home, whatever it may be. Nevertheless, this is an absolute statement. I shall not lack. God will take care of us. The fifth observation is that God provides rest, refreshment, restoration from the anxieties of life. That is the imagery we have in verses 2 and three, God is the one who causes us to relax in the midst of the turmoil, the uncertainties, the fears, the anxieties of life. We face challenges, we face crises, we face conundrums, we face calamities and cataclysms, yet God is the one 
who is in control. And then we come to the uh, the sixth point. The Lord is a shepherd. This is in verses 1 through 4. Then he's portrayed as a host. And in the final conclusion, he is portrayed as the one who is the center of worship in the sanctuary, which is the house of the Lord. So overall, we see that this is a psalm that is to remind us that God is our place of rest. He's our place of refreshment. He's the one who restores us from the anxieties, the worries, all of the turmoil in our soul so that we can uh, we can relax and be refreshed in him. Now, as we continue in the study and begin to look at it a little more, we need to realize that as we take this and make it a little more universal, that we all face adversity. I covered this a couple of Sundays ago uh, in the uh, in this series that we're sort of doing alongside of this, started uh, two or three weeks ago once we went into this quarantine situation. Then I think it was the second of those I talked about suffering. Why is there suffering? Why does God allow suffering? And God allows suffering because he allowed freedom. Because God allowed freedom to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the freedom to choose against him, the freedom to disobey him. Just because people have liberty doesn't mean they use it rightly. Sometimes they do foolish things, sometimes sinful things, sometimes stupid things. Adam and Eve, probably you could say all three of those terms applied. It was sinful, it was stupid, and it was foolish. And they, uh, at Eve first, listened to the serpent and ate from the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in disobedience to God, and then she enticed her husband and he ate. The result was that sin entered into the human race, it entered into God's creation, and it not only caused spiritual death in the, the two human beings, but this spiritual death would be passed on from generation to generation. It brought a curse, a judgment on all of the physical creation. It, it changed laws of physics. It changed the uh, structure of the botanical kingdom, of the, of the biological kingdom, so that uh, now you had uh, uh, plants that grew thorns and thistles. You have weeds. You have things that in the creation that would fight against uh, the farming of the soil. And with the animals, they they developed uh, teeth. That initially, they were not carnivorous. They became carnivorous. There was violence and uh, killing entered into all of creation, all of history. This leads to suffering. You have personal suffering simply because we live in a fallen world. We have suffering because we make bad decisions just like uh, Adam and Eve made bad decisions. And in freedom, as I said earlier, people can make bad decisions. One of the things that's, that's a tension for a lot of people, and I think some pastors today, is that, that on the one hand we know that at least as far as we've been told that it's important to keep people separate, to, to have this social distancing, and so that they do not infect other people because of this particular virus. As far as we're told, it's uh, extremely contagious. Read a story or heard of a story over the weekend of a lady who had a, a lot of underlying conditions, so she did not go out of her house at all. 
but she had a neighbor who would shop for her, leave her groceries for her on the front door, and this woman came down with the virus, and apparently there was uh, the virus got onto the packaging and the food and whatever, and so this woman caught it and eventually died. Uh, so these kinds of things happen. So it's a, a focus on protection. And yet you have pastors who uh, are playing Russian roulette with their congregations. Now, they have the freedom to do that. We have the freedom under the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that we are guaranteed the right to assemble and the right to worship as we see fit. And sadly, very sadly, just this, just yesterday I read the story of a pastor who refused to have his congregation social distance, and they continued to meet, and he, in fact, became inf- so infected with this virus that he died. That's the same kind of foolishness that Adam and Eve engaged in. Because you're free doesn't mean you ought to do something. It's sort of, I've, I've joked about this in the past, talking about, the law of interpretation, putting forth the law of spandex. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And just because you can wear spandex doesn't mean you should wear spandex. In other words, just because a passage can mean something doesn't mean you should. Just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean you should do that. It it may not be wise. It may not be righteous. It may... Uh, it may be foolish, it may be uh, damaging to other people. So uh, this causes suffering when people make bad decisions. We make bad decisions and we suffer the consequences of our own bad decisions. Other people make foolish or bad or sinful decisions and we suffer consequences by virtue of association. Sometimes we are blessed by association. Sometimes we are cursed or judged or we suffer by association. There's large group suffering that comes as a result of where we live and the decisions that our leaders make. If we were to live in Yemen or you were to live in Pakistan or you were to live in uh, uh, Red China, then your leadership would be making a lot of decisions for you that would be very harmful and very disruptive. Sometimes there are good decisions that are made that appear to be that way to begin with, and then they go south and there's a problem. Sometimes there's national uh, situations like the one we're in where the national government makes certain decisions and we are to honor the king, we're to respect the king, we're to obey the king, even though we may think that this is not a wise course of action. And that is where we are today. And so there are going to be some consequences. We have no idea what these are going to be. But this this is the adversity we're facing. We joke a lot about it. There's so many memes that are floating around the Internet now. Some of them are quite amusing. But we all recognize the fact that it's just trying to use humor to alleviate a difficult situation. This psalmist is in a difficult situation and has been in it. But the way he has handled it is extraordinary. He is trusting in God. He has confidence. And the first three verses build to this climax in verses 4 and 5 where he talks about, even though I walk through the darkest circumstances of life, described by the metaphor of the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I'm not going to be afraid of anything. I will fear no bad things, no evil. Why? Because God is with us. And then he shifts the metaphor to that of a host. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Notice the contrast, or rather the comparison between 
walking through the valley of the shadow of death, surrounded by evil, but I'm not going to be afraid. And then the next image is sitting at a table where you're still surrounded by your enemies and you're given everything to take care of you, everything to provide for you, yet your enemies are there lurking over you, watching you, ready to pounce, ready to attack. And yet it is the, the person is totally relaxed, totally, totally comfortable. In the course of this psalm, he makes six positive affirmations. The first is he says, Yahweh my shepherd. That's literally how the first verse states, Yahweh my shepherd. It is a strong statement of affirmation that it is Yahweh who provides for him, protects him, and takes care of him. The second affirmation is the second line, I shall not want, literally means I have no lack, I need nothing. It is a strong statement of the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of God's power, the sufficiency of God's provision, that even though it may not be the things that we think he ought to give and may not have the details of life that we think are significant, God will take care of us exactly the way we should be taken care of. And the results are, third, he makes me lie down in green pastures. This has to do with his provision of food and sustenance being relaxed and provided for. Fourth, he says, he leads me beside the still water. There's a double emphasis there that we'll see. When you're led beside the still water, it's still water. It's not turbulent. The idea of turbulence indicates uncertainty. It indicates confusion. It indicates chaos. But still water, things are calm. Things are peaceful. Things are relaxed. Water is necessary to sustain life. But water is also necessary for cleansing for the spiritual life. And so both of these images come together there. And then he says, he restores my soul. The cleansing of the waters is necessary for the restoration of our soul. What destroys our soul is sin. What destroys and attacks our sin is when we give in to worry, anxiety, where we focus on how horrible everything is, and we give in to those insecurities and we're not trusting in God. But what restores our soul after we have sinned and as we've studied in our passage in Second Peter, that it is sin that makes war against the soul. And yet it is God that restores our soul. He then leads, guides me in the paths of righteousness. He guides me in the right paths is another way to translate that in the right paths, for his namesake, for his character, for his reputation. If we live in antinomian rebellion, then this this casts doubt on God's reputation. It's like when you were a kid and your parents would say, well, if you act like that, it reflects badly on your parents. It look, makes it look like we haven't tried to teach you or to train you or to provide for you and that we have just let you run wild. And so we are to walk with the Lord in righteousness because that reflects on his character. It shows his essence and how important he is, and that's what it means to glorify God. We've studied that word a lot, where glory has to do with stressing the importance, the significance, the value. It is something that is heavy. Literally, it's heavy, but it comes to be applied metaphorically as that which is central and necessary 
in life. So this gives us a great overview of what this psalm is all about. We'll look at the first verse. Two lines, Yahweh, my shepherd. I have no need. I shall not want. I lack nothing. And so here we see a picture of the shepherd who is out there watching over his sheep, and that's what God does is he watches over us. We are not always aware of how he's watching over us because he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Because he is omniscient, he knows everything. Because he is omnipotent, see how I've worked through these essence attributes of God, the the omni-attributes. He is able to take care of every problem. The word translated shepherd is actually not a noun like the English word shepherd is a noun. It is a participle. As I've listed there on the etymology or the syntax of the word, it is a cow participle. And as a participle, it's used as a noun, but it has a verbal aspect to it. And it means he is the one who is our feeder. Uh, the idea is a shepherd shepherds people. He guides, he leads, he directs. He is the one who takes them to pasture. He provides uh, the nourishment for them. So you could translate it, the Lord is my feeder. And that's what comes across in the first image of verse 2, that he makes me lie down in green pastures, these lush pastures. He's, he's taken us to the very best pastures with the very best uh, grass and the abundance the abundance of food. The idea that he says, the Lord is my shepherd, or the Lord my shepherd is a metaphor. And by now, this image should be getting ingrained in your heads. The Greek word over the canopy there on the top of this truck is the Greek word metaphoris, which means transportation. And what a metaphor does as a figure of speech is it transports from the literal meaning of a word to a figurative meaning of a word. A simile will say the Lord is like a shepherd, but here it's not a stated comparison. It is an unstated comparison. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, if the Lord is your shepherd, what are you? Have you thought about that? You're a sheep. And so God uses the shepherd metaphor for himself and the sheep metaphor to describe us. And let me tell you, it's not a compliment. Sheep are not, that's not a very positive image. There's another thing about sheep. Sheep, as we'll study in just a minute, what the Bible teaches about sheep, is sheep are completely dependent for everything from their shepherd. Completely. They, they can't do anything on their own. If sheep were left without a shepherd, they would die. They cannot survive on their own. This is one of the great arguments against ev- the whole theory of Darwin's evolution because sheep are dependent upon shepherds. If you had evolution and you go through this process of evolution and all of a sudden there's some animal gives birth to this this new species, and it's a sheep, that sheep's going to die pretty quickly because sheep are dumb. Sheep can't feed themselves. They can't take care of themselves. They can't protect themselves. They can't do anything. They're totally dependent upon a shepherd for survival. God specifically designed sheep for this purpose, to teach certain things. They're an object lesson for us to teach about 
who we are. And as I say all the time, God calls us sheep, and that is not a compliment. That is pretty much an insult, but it's the truth. So what do we know about sheep from the Scripture? First of all, we know that sheep have no sense of direction. They can't find their way anywhere. They can't find their way to water. They can't find their way to pasture. They can't find their way home. They can't find the way to the food. They are as lost as they can possibly be without the guidance of the shepherd. The same thing is true about believers. We have no idea which way to go, how to grow. We don't have any idea of how to live our lives and the decisions to make apart from the guidance from the shepherd, the guidance from God, which he has given us in his word. If we are not following the light of his word, we're walking in darkness. This is what First John talks about. We're walking in darkness because we've rejected his word. We're walking in sin, and we're, we're as it were, blind to all of our circumstances. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. That's your thinking. Your heart is not your emotion. It's not your feelings. The heart for the Hebrew is the center of a person, and the center of a person is his thinking. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Don't depend upon your shallow, superficial, finite amount of knowledge and information. God is the one who knows everything. God is the one who has given us instruction. We are to rely upon him. And so verse 6 says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, that's what that is really saying is in all your ways, look to him for knowledge. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He will take you on those paths of righteousness, the right paths, which is what David talks about in the third verse. So the believers have no sense of direction. Sheep have no sense of direction. The only way we can know the right thing is to follow the guidance of our shepherd, which comes through the word of God. Secondly, a sheep can't cleanse themselves. They get dirty. They they get muddy. They get all kinds of stickers and grass burrs and sticks and twigs and everything caught in their wool, and they can't cleanse themselves at all. The same is true for the believer. God is the only one who can cleanse us, and he provides cleansing through the death of his son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. First John 1, 7 says at the end that it's the blood of Jesus, that is the death of Jesus, Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. How is that applied? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I know that there are some pastors out there, there are some Bible teachers out there that say, look, verse 7 tells us that you're automatically cleansed of sin, so you don't need to confess sin. There's a very well-known Bible teacher on the radio in Dallas when I was in seminary, and this was what he was known for. He was always attacking the idea that we should confess sin. The problem is that John states the principle in verse 7, and if he didn't want people to confess sin, why does he say include 1 John 1, 9 just two verses later? 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if 1 John 1, 7 means you don't need to confess sin, 
then 1 John 1, 9 is unnecessary and shouldn't even be there because it just confuses the issue. So the way the death of Christ is applied when we sin is we admit, we confess our sin, we acknowledge it, and God instantly forgives us of those sins and then cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The third thing we know about sheep is they're helpless when they're injured. They don't know how to take care of themselves. They don't know how to heal themselves. They don't know how to cleanse the wounds, which is what we just saw. And if they are wounded or hurt or harmed, then they're going to die. Um, <clears throat> but what we know from Scripture is that we, as sinners, often hurt ourselves. We harm ourselves. We make bad decisions. We make sinful decisions. And it's only through the Savior that we are healed. In fact, that word uh, for salvation, sozo in the uh, in the Greek and yasha in the Hebrew, this word also is used to mean healing, to be deliverance from some trauma, some attack, some wound, and a lot of different applications. What we see in verse uh, in Isaiah fifty three five is that it applies to healing, healing the wounds caused by sin. That he that is the Messiah. The servant of God in context was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes, that is by his, uh, the wounds he had from the flagellation, from the whipping. By his stripes we are what? We are healed. So sheep can't heal themselves, but it is by Christ that we are healed. Fourth, a sheep can't protect themselves, but we are protected by our shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by them. And in verse 15, John 10, 15, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my sheep, my life for the sheep. Jesus is willing to give his life for the sheep. He is the one who protects us uh, in that way. Fifth, we see that a sheep cannot find food or water on his own. He can't. He can be right next to the water, and if it's bad water, he'll get into it. He he won't see it. Maybe he won't find it. He's just lost. And so God provides the feeding for us. He does this in the church age through his pastors. This is what Jesus is talking to Peter about in John twenty one fifteen through seventeen where he says, feed my lambs, that's the young baby believers. Then he says, tend my sheep, that is, it's, tending is another way of talking about feeding and providing nourishment for them. Sheep here involves all the, the sheep from every spiritual uh, maturation, babies, adolescents, and spiritual adults. And then again, he replete, repeats the first word he used for feeding at the end of uh, verse 17. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The Lord feeds us through his word as it is taught by the sub-pastors, the sub-shepherds, the pastors of the local churches. And then we see the sixth point of comparison, that a sheep is easily frightened or panicked. A sheep is easily frightened or panicked, and so the, the sheep will flee and run away, but it is the shepherd who protects and keeps them together. Isaiah 40, 11, uh, where Israel is referred to as the flock of God. And this is talking about 
uh, about the millennial kingdom. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. And so when sheep and lambs are frightened and scared, then they are provided for. Psalm 23.11 goes on to say, uh, I shall not want. And this is the word chaser in the Hebrew, which means I lack nothing. I have no need. Uh, there is no decrease. Uh, God's provided everything. Uh, this word is used in a passage in Exodus, which helps us to understand it in Exodus 16:18. Uh, it says, so when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who gathered little had no lack. This is talking about the event when manna was provided for the Israelites out in the desert. And so some went out and they gathered a lot. It was sufficient. They had nothing left over. They ate all that they had, nothing left over. But some gathered a little. Maybe they were older. Maybe they weren't that strong. Maybe they weren't that aggressive. They handled just a little bit. They had no lack. That's the same word there. They didn't. They may not have gotten as much as the next person, but when they ate it, they were just as satisfied. They were just as nourished as if they had eaten more. So it talks about the sufficiency of God's provision. Then we come down to uh, the second second verse, where David begins to talk about the things that God does for him as the leader, as the shepherd, as the one who provides for him. And we learn several things here as we just look at the passage. Uh, all of these things talk about the leadership of the passage. And so it, it starts off in talking about the fact that the fir- first thing we might say is that he, he causes us to lie down. He makes me lie down. The Hebrew word rabatz means to lie down, to rest. It's used a couple of different ways. The first time it's used in Scripture, it pictures sin lying down, crouching like a wild animal about to pounce. Another passage where it's used, a little closer to what we're talking about, is Isaiah 14.30. The firstborn of the poor will feed talking again about the millennial kingdom, the firstborn of the poor will feed and the needy will lie down in safety. This is the imagery here, lying down, surrounded perhaps by problems, but they will be in safety. And yet it says, I will kill your roots with famine and it will slay your remnant. So this is the first part is talking about this provision of God. Second thing in the leadership of the shepherd, is he leads us. This is the Hebrew word nachal, and it means to lead, to guide, to move them along, that God is the one providentially who guides us, directs us, and moves us in a, in a specific uh, direction. So we are told, uh, first of all, that God is the one who who makes us lie down in green pastures. And these green pastures um, are a very rich pasture. They're meadows that are filled with grass, an abundance of grass, like we might see uh, early in the spring as the green uh, grass is growing and there's plenty of rain and plenty of sunshine. And it is the idea that 
that uh, he makes them uh, makes them habitually lie down beside the, the uh, still waters. And then uh, he goes on to say, uh, next, as a result of this, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Uh, just another word about uh, leading beside the still waters. This provides not only, uh, not only water, which is necessary for life, but also water is necessary for cleansing, for taking a bath, for getting rid of the dirt. But it is a, a spiritual picture of the need for cleansing from sin, which transitions us into the next word, he restores uh, my soul. He provides the cleansing for us so that he can restore our soul. This is a Hebrew word that has quite a wide range of meaning. It's the word shuv, which sometimes refers to repent. Sometimes it refers to the Jews turning back to God. That's the idea there. Here it is in the polel stem. Now, Hebrew has a number of stems, and this is a rather rare one, but it has this idea of being caused to turn back. And so it is the fact that God causes us to turn back. He restores our soul to back to where it was uh, at the beginning. This is a very important imagery here where the damage that is done by sin, the damage that is done by trying to solve the problems on our own is resolved, and God is the one who brings health and wholeness uh, back to our uh, back to our lives. And then we come to this next line, long line, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Three things we need to understand here. The word nacha for leading. Secondly, the phrase, the paths of righteousness. And third, for his namesake. And so here he is talking about being led or guided in a particular direction, and it is in the right direction. The terms paths of righteousness can also be understand, understood as right paths, the correct direction. As we've seen in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, God uh, directs our paths in the right way. And so he guides us. This is not done through some sort of mysticism, some sort of liver quiver, this is done by his word. He teaches us wisdom so that we make wise decisions, we make good decisions. And if you've had a life where you've made a lot of bad decisions, then it's going to take time to reverse the damage that's been done. But God will do it. God will bring about those changes. I've seen this happen many, many times in people's lives where when they were younger, they made many, many bad decisions. Uh, maybe it involved addiction. Maybe it involved uh, choosing the right, uh, the wrong person for marriage. Maybe it involved just uh, living their life on all of the wrong priorities, all of the wrong principles. And yet once they get with the Word of God, they gradually come out of the muck and the mire. They get out of the quicksand of sin and evil and bad decisions. But it takes time. It takes 10 years. It's not going to turn around overnight. But as they get into the Word and walk with the Lord, slowly but surely they begin to uh, redirect their lives. God guides them in the correct direction. 
And then we have this phrase, for his name's sake. And what that basically means is for his reputation, for his his character, because God is the one who has said, if you come to me, I will give you life and I will give you abundant life. And so if you walk with the Lord, then God will provide that enrichment, that blessing. That's what blessing means, to enrich your lives. And God will do that, and this will enhance his reputation. That is what it means to glorify God. Psalm 31.3 says, the psalmist says to God, For you are my rock and my fortress. For your namesake, you will lead me and guide me. And here we have uh, both words that we've seen for guiding here in in uh, Psalm 23, where it says, He leads me uh, beside the still waters, and he leads me in the paths of righteousness. Both are there. God's guidance is based upon his character. It's based upon his essence and his his faithfulness. Psalm 17.5 says, My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. God guides us and we stay on the path. Psalm 65.11, You have crowned the year with your bounty and your paths drip with fatness. It's a picture if we follow the Lord, then then doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to be materially blessed. There's not going. This isn't a health and wealth gospel, but our soul is blessed and our lives are, are enriched. This idea of walking in this path is what is talked about in, in Galatians chapter 5 where it talks about we are to walk by means of the Spirit, and then later on it says that we are to, to walk, but here it's a different term. It's to follow the path that is laid out by the Spirit, and that path is laid out in the Word of God. And then we come to this conclusion when we come to verse 4, he says, Yea. In other words, what he's saying here is this is this is a conclusion. He said, even he leads me, he restores me, he leads me. Even when I am in the darkest of times, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This is a an interesting metaphor here as it combines a couple of different words together to give us the image, and it could be translated a number of different ways. It could be translated as a deathly darkness, a death-shadowed valley. It could be translated as the darkness of death or deep darkness in the valley. Uh, this is certainly something that David would have been familiar with out with the sheep. These The area where he lived in the... Uh, in the Judean hills had a lot of extremely rugged uh, gullies and ravines where the natural predators of sheep would hang out, the wolves, the lions, uh, these, the bears. D- David talks about this when he's giving his, um, giving his resume to Saul before he goes to fight Goliath. Saul says, well, what have you ever done? And he said, well, when I'm out with the sheep, whenever the lion or the bear would come in, then I would uh, would kill them. I would grab the lion by his beard. Now, he goes into hand-to-hand combat with nothing but his rod, and his that is his staff, and his sling, and yet he would kill the lion and the bear. David was tough. 
You had to be rugged to be a shepherd in those days, and and David expresses that. And so he has been in these these difficult times, these dangerous situations, and he knows that God protected him, and he trusted in God. And so he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. I am not afraid of the bad things that are going to happen. I'm not going to worry about the boogeyman coming out from under the bed. I'm not going to worry about, you know, some mythical, mythological creature jumping out from behind a tree. Uh, I'm not going to worry about the real predators that are out there. My trust is t- totally and sufficiently in God, and he is going to protect me. And that's his conclusion. He says, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so the emphasis here on the rod and the staff are how the, how the uh, shepherd would guide and direct the sheep. He would use it to, to hit them, to get them back on the trail. He would use it to the, the crook on the rod to grab them if they had gotten in a tough situation, to grab them and pull them out of a, of a tough situation. And so he is confident that God is going to uh, provide for him and take care of him. So this whole imagery of God as a shepherd is one that had a broader meaning for the nation of Israel, that God was the one who protected and provided for them, but also for those within the nation, especially the king. And so this imagery of the rod is a picture of divine guidance. In Micah 7.14, Yahweh says, shepherd your people, uh, they're speaking to Yahweh, shepherd or lead your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan, that's up in the Golan Heights today, as in days of old, but that's this picture of being shepherded, leaded, guided, directed by, by the staff. And then the imagery shifts. The imagery shifts in verse 5. Uh, it's been talking about God as a shepherd, and now it's a new metaphor. He is the host. He has provided a magnificent uh, banquet uh, for, for David. He is the honored guest, and he is brought in, and he sits at the table, and he is going to eat and drink. He is going to relax at this sumptuous feast even though he is surrounded by enemies, those who want to kill him and destroy him, those who who hate him, they are watching him, they are looking at him, and yet he's not going to be concerned about them at all. He is going to relax in the midst of danger, and this is an incredible picture of safety and security. God provides us with that safety and security, so no matter what's going on, whether it's invisible viruses or whether it's physical enemies, whether it's the uncertainty of an economic collapse, recession, or depression, or whether it it is some other uh, human enemy that seeks to take our job away from us, destroy our reputation, whatever it may be, and he has the ability, the strength that comes from God to relax in the middle of this difficult situation. So he says, first of all, you prepare a table for me, You prepare this feast in the presence of mine enemies. 
Second, he uses a word for anoint here. This is not the word that is of a ritual anointing, such as the anointing of the king. That's the word mashak, uh, the, which is where we get our word mashiach for the anointed one, the Messiah. This is a different word. This is the word uh, dishana. And this has to do with, uh, shana has to do with, uh, comes from the word for fat, and it is a, not a ceremonial anointing, but is the uh, everyday anointing that uh, a person living out in the heat and the deserts and the dry air of Israel would experience. Every day they would anoint themselves with various oils and lotions and everything to keep the skin from being dry and cracking and, and being unhealthy. So God anoints his head with oil. He provides for that which will give him comfort and give him health. And he says, my cup runs over. And this is a picture of abundance. It is not that God is parsimonious with his provision, but he is generous and it is abundant and his cup runs over. And so this brings us to the final conclusion, and that is in Psalm 23, 6, where he says, surely he expresses his confidence here, no matter what is going on. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Goodness here is the Hebrew word tov, which has to do with uh, something that is pleasant, something that is good. Uh, surely goodness. And the second word is the word mercy. We don't have a good English translation to do a one-to-one -one translation from the Hebrew word chesed. It has the idea of faithful, loyal love, constancy, faithfulness, loyalty, mercy. All of these are wrapped up in this word chesed. And so it is as if David could be saying, surely, uh, not just surely goodness and loyal love will follow me, but good loyal love, wonderful loyal love will follow me. And follow me is not the word for something that follows, it pursues him. It has a sense of, uh, of, of intentionality. It is focused on, uh, on providing for him in every way that he could. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me. God pursues us in his grace all the days of my life. And what, what, how does it end spiritually? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will maintain my fellowship with God forever. The house of the Lord would refer to the tabernacle or the temple, and this is where uh, the believer would worship God, but it, it stands for the richness of his spiritual life. And so what we see here is that in the midst of this, probably something like the Absalom revolt, where everything seems dark, everything is uncertain, everything is chaotic, his kingdom is threatened, his family is threatened, his the future plan plans that he has had are all threatened, and yet he can relax because he knows that God is in control, God will protect and provide for him, and the result is that he can exalt, he can relax, he can sleep, even in the midst of danger, because God is in control. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think our way through this psalm, to reflect on what it means to realize that you are the one who is our shepherd. We have confidence in you because you are our shepherd. We have no needs. We think we do. We often get anxious, fearful, worried about the circumstances that surround us, the uncertainties of the future. 
But yet your word says that no matter what may happen, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter how dark the days may come, you're with us. And you are constantly guiding, directing us, your rod and your staff. They comfort us. And so, Father, we're thankful for that, that even when we're surrounded by by enemies, by negative circumstances, by the threat of loss of health, the threat of loss of family, the threat of loss of income and economics, and the threat of loss of job, we can relax because you are in control. But, Father, the, what we need to do is make you our priority, to walk with you, to learn your word, to walk in the light of your word, to have our souls restored by your word and strengthened so that we can have this kind of confidence. It's available to every one of us, but we have to make that decision to study your word, to learn your word, to pray to you, pray through the scriptures. Father, help us to use this time when we are home to refocus, retool, uh, get our spiritual life back in gear because the days are coming that may be much, much worse. We never know, but we need to be prepared. And our hope, our confidence is in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.